it's not about individual countries. It's not about individual regions. It's it's not even about blocks. This doesn't work unless we vaccinate everybody. The late, late survey shows that something like 68% of Filipino adults have doubts about uh, whether they should take the COVID-19 vaccine or not. And that's just really worrying. So we can think of it as soft power sweat related to having a space program, to have this idea that Beijing is one of the world capitals that's at the forefront of various technologies. And if you look at many African countries, they've responded extremely effectively. They've made use of technology. Rwanda has been making use of drones to get messaging to very remote communities. My name is Rachel Jolly and welcome to this episode of a series of podcasts I've hosted for Pod Academy on the global politics of the pandemic. In this episode, I talk to academics in the UK, USA and the Philippines about how national agendas are affecting decision making, how the virus has to be tackled internationally and how history can sometimes get in the way. We also talk about misinformation around the disease and why, if we don't think globally, then in the end, the virus wins. Geopolitics is increasingly a major factor in the discussions around COVID, whether about access to PPE or access to the vaccine. Delivery of stocks or stopping vaccine supply arriving over a border often gets tied up with the politics and economics between countries. As some nations trumpet how well they've done, they rank themselves against others. There's something of a global competition to see which national leader can take the most glory. In the midst of this, there are countries trying to win friends and influence people by delivering stocks of vaccine to those that don't have any. Economic alliances are being built or improved, while others are being undermined. With us on the podcast are Mark Toshner, a lecturer at the University of Cambridge and a pulmonary vascular physician who spends a lot of time on Twitter answering the public's queries about vaccines when he's not looking at the impact of long COVID. We also hear from John Neary, who's based in Manila in the Philippines and teaches media and politics and is the chair of the Journalism Centre at the Ateneo de Manila University. Also joining the conversation are Jeffrey Wasserstrom, a professor in the history of China at the University of California at Irvine, and Michael Jennings. Michael is a reader in international development in the Department of Development Studies at SOAS, University of London, and researches global health and development. I start by talking to Mark Toshner. Mark, are you worried about geopolitics getting in the way of people's acceptance of vaccines? The short answer to that is yes. I usually deal on social media with individual concerns about vaccines. And so I spent a lot of my time just addressing people and, and, and what their concerns are. And, and, and I think they're complex and they vary from region to region, they vary from place to place. But the, the one thing that, that I think hasn't really been addressed very well in looking at uh, how we improve uptake is the, is the fact that we've got a whole world to vaccinate here. So it's not about individual countries, it's not about individual regions, it's, it's not even about blocks. This doesn't work unless we vaccinate everybody. And, and what you can clearly see is, forget about hesitant people, 
forget about individual reasons for not doing it. There are now really big structural problems with politics as usual getting in, in, in the way of what needs to be a kind of international approach to vaccinating everybody. So what are these obstacles? They're quite complex. They might be insoluble, which would be a, a really depressing thought, given that we have a way out of this now. And that's, you know, it's relatively simple. It's just get as many of these pretty safe and pretty effective vaccines in people as quickly as we can. But you can see, for example, in Europe, the kind of tribal politics of nation versus nation blocks acting in, in, in self-interest. And Britain has been as culpable in that as anybody else. So it's not about throwing brickbats at other nations. But you can see that politics with a small p is getting in, in the way of doing the right thing. So, Michael Jennings, why are countries not thinking more internationally about what is an international disease? In some ways, I think we seem to have actually retreated from more global responses. If you look back to the SARS epidemic, for example, in the early 2000s, I think actually the, the world was responding much more collaboratively and cooperatively, particularly those countries that were most effective. And I think that was a high point of global health. And I think perhaps what we've seen since then, and especially during COVID, is a retreat from globalised global health to a much more nationalised version. People have retreated uh, behind their borders. They've competed with each other. So, you know, at the moment, we're focusing on competition over vaccines. But if you take us back to a year ago and, and think about the competition for PPE uh, and the competition for other things. Right now, I'm enormously pessimistic because local politicians have their own audience to play to. And it's a difficult sell to come to your populace and say, effectively, for the moment, it would be we're going to divert vaccines somewhere else because we think they're needed somewhere else. And, and in the UK, we, we may be able to demonstrate a bit of largesse right now because we have 50% of our adults vaccinated. But but even then, you know, we've still not given any of our vaccines. So I think the first thing is we, we, we really desperately need a supranational organisation that, that everybody puts their time, faith and weight behind. And, and I just cannot see that being anything other than the WHO. We've actually been very good on vaccines, I think, throughout. They have a very clear, very whole world vision on it. Uh, but obviously there's a lot of factional politics and the WHO haven't always been perfect in this pandemic. I think there aren't very many organisations that have. But I think it's just really difficult to imagine approaching this as a whole world with the current national structures that we have. We really need a, an organisation above everybody and, and that is beyond kind of political reproach. The first thing we need to do is we need to have a clear idea of where vaccines are needed in the world. And actually, in the last three or four months, vaccines were needed in the UK. You know, if you were if you were going on a, a need basis, the UK and the US were probably right up at the top there. But as we go forward, that's not going to be the case. And yet we're going to see a disproportionate amount of vaccines sequestered in places like the States and, and the UK and not finding their way to places that might need them. Uh, we also need to think about how the infrastructure works around the world both for manufacturing vaccines, which at the moment is incredibly spotty, and then and then equitably distributing them with, with, with good distribution networks. So I don't think any work has really gone into this yet. Each country is kind of left to fend for itself with whatever vaccines it can get its, its, its uh, hands on. And and money talks at the moment, you know, the, the, the Western power nations are the ones that have, have sequestered all the vaccine stocks. But... We're still talking about individual nations right now. You know, we're all still focused on our little patch of the world. 
and that's not how we need to be approaching this. So if we were really serious about this, we would all be focusing on Brazil because Brazil is an absolute and utter disaster. It's a car crash happening in slow motion. And, and, and we're going to see new variants come out of there because of the, the absolutely terrifying prevalence levels. And yet Brazil does not have adequate stocks of vaccine and, 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 and we might get past the point where its infrastructure is able to deliver it. So I think, I think there are huge global challenges. I'm not sure we have either the organisation or the leaders to, to cope with this right now. But the best we can do is kind of shine a light on it and, and try to keep people keep people's attention on it. There's a real problem here as well, that the inevitable conclusion of this is going to be we're going to make pariah states of some of the poorest places in the world where effectively we are going to end up with countries where we, we have not helped them to vaccinate themselves. The, the disease becomes endemic and then we all close borders off to them because we don't want them to export it to us, which will only... You know, increase the cycle of poverty and, and, and worsen the social inequality margins between countries. In politics, the greatest distractor is having somebody else to blame, particularly somebody other, you know, and that other might be foreign or it might be, you know, there's lots of different uh, uh, stripes in which that can be patterned, but it's a really powerful uh, lever to pull and it's a really easy one to pull and it does work. John Neary, are you worried at all about the way that geopolitics is getting wrapped up into the acceptance of vaccines in the Philippines? Yes, I am very much worried because I can see it happening. The president of the Philippines and his entire administration has been pushing for a Chinese vaccine. I think, it, if I'm not mistaken, so about a month or so, about six weeks or so after the pandemic was officially declared, Tutari talking about you know, the vaccines are coming, but he was already pushing for mainly the Chinese or sometimes he would also add the Russian vaccines. Yes, there's a lot of geopolitics involved right now as far as vaccines are concerned. And that just complicates everything. In fact, unfortunately, our president has politicized the vaccine response and that, that has had an impact on vaccine hes hesitancy. It's not the only factor. In 2017, we had this scare, which was stoked by his own administration. And that has also led to an increase in the number of uh, mothers, for instance, who did not want their children to have the measles uh, vaccine. So I think that was the prior factor. And then on top of that, you have the politicization of the vaccine uh, for COVID-19. So that explains why, if I'm not mistaken, the light survey shows that something like 68% of Filipino adults have doubts about uh, whether they should take the COVID-19 vaccine or not. And that, that's, just, that's just really worrying. It was only in February that so-called emergency use authorization was given to the Sinovac vaccine. And it was, it, was, it was a very strange decision by our Food and Drugs Administration because the clearance given had a limitation. It said, in fact, the FDA director announced that we are uh, giving emergency use authorization to the Sinovac vaccine, but we are not encouraging it to be used for our medical frontliners. They thought that it wasn't safe, the, the, the efficacy rate wasn't high enough for the medical frontliners to use it. And that explains why there are many doctors and nurses and interns 
and other hospital staff who have decided to wait for AstraZeneca or the other Western vaccines. Let's look at some of the significant players in the world of global health right now. Here's Michael Jennings. I think India's interesting because I think one of the things that it's doing is to try and emphasize the strength of its pharmaceutical sector. And, and India for a long time has been involved in providing vital drugs and medicines across the world to countries in the global south, to those that don't have the capacity or don't currently have the capacity anyway to establish strong, extensive pharmaceutical sectors. So for example, it's been long involved in producing generic versions of key treatment for HIV, the antiretroviral therapy drugs, and you know, shipping those to countries in the global south. And so it's become a very important player. So I think part of what India is trying to do is perhaps to emphasize the strength of its pharmaceutical sector uh, and to position itself not just as a strong pharmaceutical power within the terms of the global south, but a strong pharmaceutical power within global terms full stop. And I think the vaccines, again, might be quite successful in that. If you look at China, China has been seeking to become a global power through its engagement, through investment, through international aid, and through other forms, including health, for the past two decades. So there's an extent to which I think it's using its vaccine as part of that strategy. So it's not necessarily something new, but it fits into that way of responding. So it clearly is about demonstrating China's global responsibility, its global authority, its global power, its willingness to help other countries, and in doing so, try to gain support for its model, the Chinese model, um, of particularly of governance. We can certainly see it very clearly in the current COVID crisis, where people are clearly using vaccines both for soft power prestige games, but also that aligning it with aspirations for getting an economic toehold. So, for example, I think you can see quite clearly Russia and China using their uh, vaccine donations in Latin America in particular, so a, a, a global region where neither of them have, had, have traditionally had a significant amount of influence, but using that to perhaps gain more of a foothold in those areas. Jeffrey Fasterum puts China's actions into a historic context and considers if today is any different. The Chinese Communist Party has been trying to develop relationships with a wide spectrum of countries around the world, often countries that used to be in the category of developing countries, or some still are. And it's some of the same countries that they were interested in, they've had relationships with going way back to the Mao era, but there are also some that are specifically being connected with through the Belt and Road Initiative, this very broad reaching set of economic initiatives, which tend to place Beijing in the position of having things to provide to other countries that they might in other cases have looked to Washington for, or to some other part of the world for. So the vaccine fits into that. So they would partly be looking to, and, and, and it'll, there's a pragmatic side to it, it's providing a social good, public health good, but it's also part in the soft power way of trying to solidify an idea of a vision of China as a technological and scientific leader in the world. So we can think of it as soft power, what related to having a space program, to have this idea that 
Beijing is one of the world capitals that's at the forefront of various technologies. And so in that sense, the vaccine is partly a kind of, it's, it's the technology, it's of having been developed quickly, as well as the pragmatic effects of it that are part of the soft power equation. So China is reaching new partnerships with nations that it wants to have a different relationship with at the same time as growing its overall global power? Yeah, that would be true. And this is going on in multiple fronts. And you can think about it as there are efforts with infrastructure, there are other things. And while clearly there is just a you know a public good side to it, there's also a hope, I think, on the case of the Chinese Communist Party, that that would lead to the countries that are getting the vaccine to be more likely to line up with the Chinese Communist Party at the UN when they were to be less ready to sign on to things to censure policy. So there's a pragmatic geopolitical side to it for Beijing as well. I think it's been quite interesting, for example, to see what China's been doing in Brazil and and thinking about are some of the contracts that seem to have emerged after pledges of the vaccine were made you know, were they linked? What other worries might we have about that sort of relationship and the influence of it? So I think the, the first thing to worry about is not thinking about relationships, but it's just the, the problem is that information about the safety and efficacy of the, the Chinese vaccines, there just isn't enough. We just don't have enough trust in the media system there to be sure that information about about them that's accurate is getting out. So this is one of the cases where just not having, you know, not having a free press and the fact that early in the pandemic, there was, there were cover-ups of some of the the medical information. It's not that there's, there's reasons to think that there are things wrong with the vaccine. It's simply that we just don't have the kind of information. So that's something to worry about. You'd like to have more of a kind of impartial, form of vetting and testing of things and have the results that you can trust and believe in. Is this because we know that doctors who have called out the government have had prison sentences? So is there going to be a scepticism about whether Chinese doctors are being leaned on now to just toe the government line? That's definitely a concern. And it's in a sense, it's a bigger concern now because when you, if you go back in time to SARS, one of the ways that you had as a check on the information that was going, coming out of the mainland was that you had a free, pre- a free press in Hong Kong that was monitoring it and testing it. And so now it's, Hong Kong is being part of the, one of the main places that the mainland is trying to get use of its vaccine is in Hong Kong. And there have been statements by the Hong Kong government about the safety and efficacy of this, but there's much less trust at this moment in, in any statements coming out uh, of Hong Kong with any kind of official stamp because the Hong Kong government is being forced to line up much more with Beijing on things. John Neary, can you tell us about whether you're seeing misinformation or disinformation around COVID in the Philippines? So you have this invisible machine already in place and they have been you know churning out all sorts of disinformation mainly political and now that you have the coronavirus uh, pandemic you can see that that invisible machine is also being used to push out disinformation okay a lot of the disinformation unfortunately goes back to the chinese versus western debate so that 
invisible machine pushes disinformation that you know Sinovac has you know equally high efficacy rates as Pfizer or Moderna and so on. So it follows. It is aligned with uh, the national government's own propaganda objectives. As far as disinformation is concerned, there is already this infrastructure that has been churning out this information, and I've seen that invisible machine push pro-Chinese content regarding Chinese vaccines. But there's another layer where I think it's just, you know, civic-spirited people with a little more time on their hands than usual spreading the latest news about so-called cure. Is there any evidence that China, in as, as it grows its economic relationship with countries, also looks at other kinds of relationships which can be more worrying than, you know, just trade? So I don't think the Chinese Communist Party is unusual in this. I mean, when the United States develops relationships with other countries based on economic aid, I think there's a presumption that this is going to go along with a tendency to side with the U.S. and other issues. And certainly this was something that the Soviet Union did. It's something that happens kind of routinely. But I think it is something to worry about right now when you have particularly the 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 case of the human rights abuses in Xinjiang, this very, very worrisome set of appalling, be, uh, appalling policies, that there's a groundswell in some parts of the world toward more censuring of the Chinese Communist Party on this. But there, there are some countries that aren't taking part in that censuring, in part because of having developed a degree of economic dependency. So we, we have a kind of push and pull uh, going on with with blocks and countries. It's not as clear-cut as it was during the Cold War, though the Cold War was always more complicated than just two big blocks. There were always non-aligned countries and other countries trying to maneuver. But now we have a very variegated geopolitical landscape, and the Chinese government is trying very hard to tip things in its favor on these kinds of things, and to some extent has been fairly successful. We've seen a set of countries that you might have expected to be more concerned about the fate of a largely uh, Muslim ethnic group inside of China that have been loath to speak out because of strategic or economic forms of dependency. Several people have highlighted that the Chinese success in creating a vaccine early on and also driving down the numbers of people with COVID in China is being used by the Chinese government to say, look at us, we've done really well. Look at the rest of the world, they're really not. Yeah, I think there are things that you can conveniently leave out of the story or you emphasize in the story. There's no question that there are countries that have handled the pandemic much more effectively than other countries. And I think the problem is when, if you take a more simplistic view, it would be, well, maybe authoritarian structures aren't so bad because you have a lot of information about your population and you can respond quickly and look at China as an example of that. But the response has been very strong, very effective in Taiwan, which has a vibrant civil society and democracy. And it definitely has quite a good degree of currency within China itself. And clearly there's awareness. What can be very effective with media structures is if if countries get a little bit of information from outside and a lot of information from inside. So there's a lot of stories about the positive side of, of the COVID story within China and a 
limiting of the discussion of the of the initial cover-up and issues like that. The idea behind global health was to move towards an idea of global cooperation, the idea that health, uh, your disease doesn't know boundaries, viruses, you know, don't respect borders, and the need for collaborative action. But actually, I think what COVID has shown is that that's not really the way that it has worked. And I think one of the key lessons we need to take when we look back at this is what did those countries in the global south do? What did those countries in sub-Saharan Africa do that meant they were less hard hit than us? Of course, there will be biological reasons relating to the workings of the virus and so on. But there are also responses that that were undertaken by governments and medical professionals that we could learn a lot from in the global north in thinking about how we respond not only to the tail hopefully the tail end of this current coronavirus uh, crisis but also for the next health crisis that comes along and if you look at many african countries they've responded extremely effectively so countries like senegal had a track and trace system that was up and running long before we had our version in the uk there's been extensive use of apps again something that people don't often think of in relation to sub-saharan africa because we're so embedded in this narrative of poverty but actually you know country you know, governments across the region have made use of apps they've made use of technology rwanda has been making use of drones to get messaging it to very remote communities and i think one of the lessons for covid has to be how do you truly globalize global health how do we ensure that there is much more power and authority at local levels not just in production of vaccines and production of drugs but also in policy in responding early warning systems and so on for the final word we return to mark toshner Mark, do you think that the argument that if neighbouring countries don't have the vaccine and if you are unwilling to share the vaccine, then the virus comes back to you, is this going to finally break through and change the overall approach? I suspect there aren't a lot of politicians who are immediately focused on that. I think it requires some real vision to be able to see that far down the road. And, And I just worry right now that I don't see a lot of people making that pitch at a national level of importance. In fact, I don't see or hear anybody making that pitch. If, if you're going to be really brutal about it, it's the only argument that, that I think is going to cut through, that actually forget about the altruistic and right thing to do, forget about you know, whether you're globalist or a localist or, or whether you're left or right. If we don't do this, it just comes back. And so we lose. If a few countries lose, we all lose. We'll be back at square one and we'll be going through cycles of this again with potentially more strains or, or even, you know, you know, pandemic 